realize that you have the authority of heaven and earth, that you have died and risen, defeated death, and now reign as king. And Lord, we are in all of you, and during the service we are giving praise to you, and Lord, as Lee preaches, um, give him the words um, to, to touch our hearts, to convict us, and to lead us to repentance, and to lead us to glorify you more. In Jesus Christ, amen. Well, good morning, church. Very glad that you were here this morning. Excited about the passage in front of us today. Um, I've been reminded three times in the past 24 hours that one of the last times I filled this pulpit that I left some um, nursery workers stranded on an island by themselves for about 30 minutes. So we're going to avoid that consequence this morning. You would think being a CPA that pithy would be part of my skill set, but unfortunately it is not. Um, that said, we will we will give. Lord's word, it's due today, and respect our children's workers all at the same time. I, a uh, little context for those of you who may be new, um, I do not normally fill this pulpit. Um, Pastor Abi Todd normally fills this pulpit, but he's out of town this weekend, um, so I get the pleasure of being here with you and um, bringing John 5 before you. I, I had a bit of a, an interesting week. So I'm a CPA by trade, if you will. Um, I work for a CPA firm, about 250 of us around the country total. Um, and this week our firm leadership got together in Denver, Colorado. Um, in case you're wondering, no, you do not want to go to a CPA firm leadership meeting. You would find yourself bored very, very quickly. But it was interesting. Um, we have all this, you know, nine and a half hours of this formal training during the day, and then go to dinner and then you know, things move more into networking and just social time with one another. Um, and we were sitting around Thursday night, uh, me and a few of the leadership from my office and some from other offices around the country, um, and a topic of conversation came up about one of our former co-workers. Um, this gentleman had been with the firm 25 years, only place he had ever worked, grew up in the church went to a Christian high school, went to a Christian college, graduated, went to work with a firm that works with faith-based faith nonprofits. Fast forward 25 years, he's the CEO of a top 100 firm in the country, 35 years old, and has his whole life ahead of him. Notice I said, former co-worker. Uh, in the last year, this co-worker had fell into fraud, he had stolen from the firm, he had, quite frankly, treated other people poorly. Um, he had put himself on numerous occasions um, ahead of the good of the firm. And so we're sitting there, we're having this conversation, and we're kind of walking through what had happened the last nine months. And in the way that the Lord works, one of my coworkers says, he says, well, you know what I'm really concerned about? And they're like, what are you concerned about? He's like, you know what Christ said in John 5, 44? And I'm like, yeah, I know exactly what Christ said in John 5.44. I'm preaching it this Sunday. John 5.44, Christ essentially explains you cannot both believe in me and seek your own glory. 
and that proceeded into a conversation about the, the care of this individual's soul because he had displayed in very real and tangible ways that he cared more about his own glory than the glory of the Lord. So I bring that to you today to say this passage has very real implication for us. Um, it's, a, it's in some ways it's a heavy passage. Um, Sarah and I were talking last night about the passage and I kind of walked her through where we were going to go today. And I said, you know, the great thing about the passage is that if, if you're not found in Christ or if you're, you're struggling with seeking your own glory, then the passage is full of hope. There is a way, there's a, there's a path to freedom away from being enslaved to yourself. But it also works in the opposite direction. If you find yourself filled with, with pride or self-righteousness or desiring your own glory, the passage cuts right to the chase. It says, this is not the characteristic of those who believe in the Lord. So we have here a beautiful marriage of grace and of truth in a way that only the Holy Spirit can bring together. So let's read the passage. John 5. The text we'll, we'll concentrate on this morning is verses 30 through 47. I'm going to back up to verse 25 and start there. We'll read from there through the end of the chapter. John says this, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Verse 30, Christ continues that line of thought. He says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Verse 31, Christ has this. He's been talking about his judgment. All right, where are you going to go with this? Where are we going to head? Christ continues on and says, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There's another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You said to John... And he is borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. So up to this point, Christ has this very logical argument. My authority is rooted in something else. It's not rooted in John. It's not rooted in myself. It's rooted in something else. Halfway through verse 37, there's a, there's a switch, and it's very subtle. Christ goes from building this argument about his authority and his truthfulness to speaking to the heart of his audience. He says, His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, 
and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. You gotta love that. Christ is like, hey, just in case you missed it the first four times I said I'd just say it one more time. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. Crux, here's that verse that my coworker mentioned this week. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how then will you believe my words? Join me in prayer. I'm going to pray for you. You pray for me. That God will receive glory from this text today. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit on these writers to, to bring these words to us. Father, we pray now that you, you peel back the, the layers of our soul and get to the root of who we are. God, we pray that you expose to us our sinfulness and our utter need for you. God, I pray that we walk from here today with a, with a burden for, our, for ourselves and for our souls and for our sinfulness, but also walk away with all joy, knowing that there is a Savior that has redeemed. Father, we love you. In the precious name we pray. Amen. All right. So let's get to work here. Any Anytime you hear me fill this pulpit, I generally always follow the same outline. We're going to talk about context. Who's speaking? Who are they speaking to? Why are they doing it? Talk a little bit about the structure of the passage. We'll dive into the content of the passage, and then we'll ask the question, so what? What does this mean for you and for I today? So context, who's speaking here? Jesus. Aha, there we go. Jesus, very good. It's a great Sunday school answer, right? You get a 90% chance of success with that one. So who's Jesus speaking to? Who, who is Christ speaking to in this passage? Back up in verse 18 of the passage, the, the audience is identified as Jews in some translations. Some translations translate a little differently. What you need to know about these Jews is they just weren't commonplace Jews. These were Jews who were very religiously focused. They were either religious leaders or those who were very heavily influenced by them. Why does that matter? Essentially, we need to know they, these are people who know the scriptures. These are not people who just happen to stumble up and you know, start hearing all these things about scriptures and glory and miss their first exposure to it. These are people who are very, very familiar with the writings of Moses, with the writings of the Old Testament prophets, and who were, quite frankly, just comfortable in these religious types of environments. So why? Why, why this passage? Why is Christ delivering this message? Uh, I think most clearly the answer to why actually is told to us in the end of the book. If you go to John twenty thirty one, John says... These things are written so that you may believe 
that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So that's why. Why is Christ having this conversation with the religious Jews? He even says it in this passage. He's saying, I do it so that you may believe. And we'll see as we walk through the structure of the passage that in the beginning Christ builds a very logical, almost heady argument about why he has authority. It's very logical very Platonian in some ways. From, but then there's a switch. And, and Christ goes from engaging the mind of his audience to engaging the heart of his audience. And he starts to speak to the soul of the people in front of him and say things like, you have never heard. You do not want to believe. So he makes this transition from a logical thought to a heart condition. That context, that structure in front of us, let's dive into the passage itself. I'm going to start in verse 30 today. Um, depending on how your Bible is divided up, you either have a section break after verse 29 or after verse 30. It likely says something to the effect of witnesses to Christ or witnesses of Jesus, something along these kinds of lines. Not entirely the most helpful title in subheading ever, but that's okay. Um, Verse 30, the first verse in our passage today, is a continuation of the thoughts above. So that's the reason I started reading in verse 25, just to give us a little context. Um, but it also, it also lends meaning to where we're going to go through the rest of the passage. Verse 30, Christ says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own, but the will of him who sent me. So Christ is... Referencing back up to what he had just said earlier, verses 25 through 29, talking about the resurrection that is to come, the judgment that is to come. Christ essentially is answering the question in verse 30 as to why his judgment is just. And here he's, he starts to set a tone for the rest of the passage, talking about his justice, his truthfulness, his authority, and what all of that is rooted in that lends actual authority and truth to it. So Christ in verse 30, essentially saying, I judge and my judgment is just because my judgment is not rooted in myself, it's rooted in the Father. He'll continue, Christ will continue this similar line of argument all the way through verse 30, the first half of verse 37. He's essentially just driving home the point over and over and over again that I don't, I don't come under my own authority, I don't come in my own name, I don't come in my own glory, I come in the name of the Father, I come for the glory of the Father, I come to do the works of the Father. And so he's building this logical argument in the mind of us and in the mind of his listeners that, okay, this, this guy isn't just the, the, the microphone that stands up there to trumpet himself. He's something else. He's different in this regard. The end of verse 30, we, we kind of hit this place that's a little bit of transition. It's like, okay, where is Christ going to go with this? Is he going to, to dive more into what he referenced in verse 29? That all will come out of the grave, including those that have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment? Is he going to explore with us what that means and how one finds themselves on either side of the coin? Is he going to expound more on his judgment and how that works? 
think Christ in some ways takes, takes a little bit of a surprising turn here. He doesn't really talk about those things directly. He continues to drive home the point that he is true because his truth is rooted in something else. Now, that's it's a little bit surprising, but at the same time, he knows the audience he's talking to. He knows the people that are sitting in front of him. And he knows that they don't believe. And the whole book is written so that they may believe. Verse 31, Christ says, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There's another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony he he bears about me is true. On the surface, this is fairly simple and straightforward. Christ is saying, if I was bearing witness about myself, my testimony would not be true because it would be rooted in me and not rooted in the Father. At the beginning of verse 32, there's this somewhat confusing phrase. It says, there's another who bears witness about me. And in the following verses, Christ is both going to talk about John and about God the Father as those who bear witness to him. I think the language here is intentionally ambiguous, so it doesn't really give us clarity here as to what Christ is talking about, and I think that's intentional. I think as we'll see in the following verses, John bears testimony to Christ in a way that is helpful. But God bears testimony to Christ in a way that grounds him in truth and gives him authority. So John's helpful, but God the Father's testimony is ultimate. So I think this verse here is intentionally ambiguous for us. Verse 33, here's that reference to John. He says, you said to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Verse 34, here's that clarification. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things to you, yet again, echoing later in John 20, 31. I say these things to you so that you may be saved. So, important point of distinction. John's testimony is good and it's helpful, but it's not ultimate. Christ does not have authority and does not have power and does not have truthfulness because of the testimony of John. Christ has truthfulness, has power, has authority, has just judgment because he's rooted in the Father. He's exchanged his glory, as he says in verse 41. He's exchanged his glory for the glory of the Father. Pick up in verse 34. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man. Here's where Christ is making that distinction that we were just talking about. But I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning, referencing to John. And shining lamp, and you are willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But, but, Christ says, the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Christ finishes his very logical argument about why he has justice and why he has authority first part of verse 37, he says, And the Father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. So all of that is very heady. Kind of have to wade through it a little bit. Put it in summary. Christ is saying, I have authority, and I have justice, and I have truth, because I am rooted and given that authority by something other than myself. Something other than even another human being. I am given authority, truth, and justice because I am rooted in God the Father. I am the working out of his will. 
I'm the working out of his glory on earth in lockstep. What the Father wants, I do. That's it. That's verses 30 through 37a in a nutshell. Thanks for sticking with me. I know that was a ton of fun. Verse 37b, end of verse 37. So we start to see this shift. So Christ has been making this very heady argument. And he goes from that to really this series of indictments and this series of accusations against the Jews that he is he's speaking to. Starting at the end of verse 37, he, he kind of lets off this like mini tirade. Like, you can tell there's a little, a little insult, insult buried in, in these words. He says, his voice you have never heard, his referring to the Father. So Christ is already dispatched with the conversation about John. He's focusing on the Father. So when he says his, he's talking about God the Father. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Okay, take a step back. What's the context here? Well, what's the context? Christ is speaking to the religious elite. So to put this, put us in this situation, this wouldn't even necessarily be like me getting up here and telling all of you that you've never heard God, you don't believe in God, and just hurling this list of insults. It would be like me getting up in front of a group of, of pastors, of the religious leaders of the day, and just saying, you've never heard the voice of God the Father. You don't even believe him. And I think in that context, we start to see how radical these words are coming from Christ. He's made this logical argument. He's like, all right, we're done with logical. Let's get to the heart of the matter. Verse 39, he continues on. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Pause yet again. He's pointing out to the religious elite of the day, you study the scriptures, but you have missed the point. You have dedicated your life to doing this thing, and you have missed the point. And verse 40 is very interesting. It's probably, in your Bibles, translated something to the effect of, you refuse to come to me. More literally, the Greek is, you don't want to come to me. So Christ has hurled the insult, if you will. You dedicated your life to this. You missed the point. Now let's talk about why you've missed the point. Verse 40 is our, our first little insight into why that is. You refuse to come, or you don't want to come to me. Which then bears the question, okay, these are religious elites. They've dedicated their life to the study of the scriptures, and they've missed the point. They miss the point because they don't want to believe in Christ. So why? Why these people who have dedicated their lives to the study of the scriptures, the understanding of God's word, why do they not want to come to believe in Christ? Glad you asked. <clears throat> verse, verse 41 through 44, Christ yet again <coughs> dives deeper into this. He starts to explain to us and give us insight as to why these, these religious elites do not want to believe in him. Verse 41, Christ says, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. 
I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. And then the, the rhetorical question in verse 44. It's, a, it's, it's rhetorical because the answer is so obvious to his audience that it doesn't even need to be answered. Christ says, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? So let's connect, connect verse 40 and verse 44 together. Verse 40, Christ diagnoses the condition. You religious elites do not believe because you do not want to believe. Verse 44, why do you not want to believe? You do not want to believe because you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. So, I think this is especially telling. Religious elites, people not all that different from us, from you and from I, except more well-versed in the scriptures, are not believing in God because they don't want to believe in God. Why do they not want to believe in God? Because they want their own glory above the glory of God the Father. So now back up. Now you see why Christ started with that really heady logical argument, right? My glory, my authority, my justice is not rooted in me. It's rooted in God the Father. So if you want to know why I have authority and why I have done all these works, all these miracles that have occurred already in John and will continue to occur throughout the rest of the book, it's because of God the Father. I'm doing his work, doing his will, under his authority, for his glory. So that's the reason Christ started with that heady argument, because he's going to get to the heart of the Pharisees before him and say, if you want to believe, your issue is that you don't want to believe because you want your own glory more than you want the glory of God the Father. Christ continues on. We won't spend much time here in verses 45 through 47. You could spend a lot of time tracing back this whole conversation about Moses, the Old Testament. Um, just know from the beginning of this conversation that this reference to Moses would hit home with them very, very hard. These are Old Testament scholars. Moses is their guy. Moses is who they know. It's who they relate to. It's who they draw back to. It's who they've drawn inspiration from, and here's Christ standing before them and essentially saying, look, you want to talk about the person that's going to accuse you? It's not me. It's Moses. It's your guy. Your guy that you know, that you studied, that you dedicated your life to understanding, he's the one who will condemn you, not me. Verse 45, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. It's a very condemning phrase, on whom you set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So, summarize the passage, and we'll talk about so what. What does this mean for us? Christ starts with this heady argument. My authority, not rooted in me, rooted in God the Father. I'm not here for my glory, I'm here for the glory of God the Father. Moves, verse 37b, to an indictment of his audience, the indictment of the Jewish religious leaders in front of him, essentially says, you do not believe because you do not want to believe, and you do not want to believe because you want to seek your own glory above the glory of God the Father. That's it. Here's the passage in a nutshell. So what does this mean for us? First, 
just because the audience here is Jewish religious elites does not mean we can let ourselves off the hooks and say, oh, this is not talking about us. This is talking clearly about the, just the audience Christ was talking to. This is just for the Jewish religious elites that he was talking about. No. Remember, John 20, 31, why is the whole book written? The whole book written is written so that we, larger audience, not just Jewish elites, so that we, all of us, may believe. So, now that we know, this has implication for us. This just is an implication for the Jews that Christ was talking to. What does it mean? What does it mean for us? What does it mean for us in 2018 Oxford, Georgia? I think there's a lot of implications here. Um, most pointedly for me, it, it has implications for my former coworker, a man that I know and I love and I adore, who has dedicated his life to serving faith-based ministries. It has implications for him. Christ says, verse 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? My coworker has sought his own good and his own glory at every single point along the way for a 24 to 36 month period. So what am I left to conclude based on what Christ is saying? What am I left to conclude? I'm left to conclude that I need to pray desperately for the soul of my coworker. Because Christ is clear here. Crystal clear. You cannot believe in Christ and seek your own glory. Crystal clear. Crystal clear. If you seek your own glory, you do not believe in the Christ. Clear. Crystal clear. When we talk about Sin, which we do and we should and we should continue to, this is the ultimate expression of sin. Self-glory, <laughs> desiring our own pride and our own well-being, is the root of sin. There are no, there are no free passes in this passage. Nowhere does Christ say, Okay, well, if you kind of seek your own glory sometimes, we'll let you in. That's not what Christ says. Christ says you do not want to believe because you want to seek your own glory above the glory of God the Father. It's a very condemning passage for me. Sitting on an airplane trying to prepare for a sermon, and I read this, and it's like, wow. This is quite the implication for my own soul. Because you start... To think about how you handle your week. And what floods into my mind are all the moments where I seek my own comfort, my own glory, and my own reputation, and my own well-being, and my own self-preservation. And I seek all of those things because it's all about me. I want my glory. I want to look good. I want to get the next promotion. I want to be the next thing. I want to be looked well upon. And I want all of those things. I want them. And I want them desperately. And Christ says in verse 44, how can you believe, Lee Parker? How can you believe if you seek those things? And I think that weight sits with us all. 
that we can read this passage and you can quickly see yourself here. See it in your responses to your spouse. See it in your responses to your children. See it in responses to your coworkers. <clears throat> see it in response to your customers. For those of us who deal with that, you know what that's like. To drive the point home, let me be clear. We cannot seek our own glory and be counted amongst the children of God. That's what Christ is saying. All right, now that I have you feeling hopeless, there's more. There's more good news. This is very damning. This is clearly a standard that we cannot obtain. I know blessed saints who have spent their lives on the the edges of the earth serving the Lord, who spent years toiling away, and they struggle with this same thing. They struggle with this, I want my own glory, I want my own glory. So our goal here is not to cause anyone to doubt their salvation necessarily, but the goal is for us to realize that every single day we have to throw ourselves desperately at the feet of King Jesus and beg for his mercy and his grace to sever this root that connects us to our own glory. Amen. And that is the only way this will happen. The only way. I remember having a conversation with my coworker who got fired. And I remember him telling me how much of a burden he had to see people in the firm succeed. He told me that. Nine months before he got fired for stealing from the firm, for treating people poorly, he had the desire, but it was not a work that he could do. Good news. It's Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, Paul tells us, but God, we can end right there. That, that is the message. But God. If we want to sever this sinful root that keeps us from wanting to believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Son of God, if we want to do that, but God. I could stop right there. Fortunately, Paul keeps going. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So we're dead this root has us dead, and we cannot sever it. Made us alive with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We haven't even gotten to the part that we all know yet. Do you realize what just happened in verses 4 through 7? But God... God can sever the root. When we throw ourselves desperately at the feet of King Jesus, that root can be severed. And in verse 7, look at the difference. So in the coming ages, he, being Christ, might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Do we understand how radical? Christ is doing for us not only the very thing that we cannot do, but he's lavishing grace upon grace upon grace upon glory upon us. Verse 8. This is the part we all know. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. What does Paul say next? What does Paul say next? So that no man... There it is again. Completely different writer. This is Paul speaking to the church at Ephesus, and he identifies the same thing that Christ is talking about in John 5. The, the heart of salvation and the heart of life in Christ lies in substituting our glory for the glory of God the Father. Verse 10, Paul finishes, For we are his workmanship, created in, in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's remarkable. God gives us grace. He gives us this free gift. But he doesn't just stop there. He lavishes us with his grace. He lavishes us with his glory. And we become his workmanship. His project. His beloved child. <clears throat> to do the good works that he created beforehand. Lots of other examples throughout Scripture of, of why God is, is faithful to his, his humble elect who throw themselves at the feet of King Jesus to sever this root. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yet again, it's not just a, a one-time event. This isn't a, we have arrived, we have experienced the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and we have decided that we want to sever our sinful root and seek the glory of God. Not what these passages say. This is not a, a one-and-done scenario. A lot of Daniel Hungers, sorry. <laughs> Didn't recognize the irony of that comment right now. Um, it's, it's not a one-and-done solution. This isn't a, you go and you're, you do this once and you're in. It's not how this works. That's not what Ephesians 2 tells us. That's not what John 5 tells us. That's not what 1 John 1 tells us. And that's especially not what Romans 8 tells us. Romans 8, 28-30. We all know it. We just preached it here at this church not too long ago. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew. Now watch. At no point is there any doubt of maybe or he might. These are definitive phrases. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. There it is again. Workmanship in Ephesians 2 and Romans 8. To be conformed to the image of his son. So that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those who justified, he also glorified. So this has implication not only for us. It certainly has implication for us. It has an implication that it's not enough to have an experience to make a choice at one point in time to sever this root under our own power that connects us to our self-glory. That's not enough. This is a lifetime working out event. And for those of us found in Christ, 
the only appropriate response is for us to throw ourselves every moment of our lives at the feet of King Jesus and say, this is not a work I am able to do. You have to substitute your glory for my glory. This is not something we can do. So it has implication for us, but it also has implication for us as a church. Both Church of Haynes Creek as well as American church as well as how we replicate ourselves around the world. There's been a, as John Piper pointed out recently and as others have pointed out over the last decade, there became some time in the 70s, 80s, 90s this obsession in American culture with the decision. You even have a song about it. I have decided to follow Jesus. No, you did not. No, no, you did not decide to follow Jesus. Christ, crucified, spoke into your heart and severed the root that seeks to promote your own glory above the glory of God. That is not a work that we can do. And it's not a one-time work. That's a work that we have to get up every day and strive for. You know how I know? Because I had a conversation with a guy nine months before he was fired from stealing for our firm about how much he wanted to see this happen. And he tried to do it in his own power. And you know what happened? He's running. He's in court. He's doing all these things. All because he sought his own glory. So, Haynes Creek. It's not enough. It's not enough for us personally to say, well, I'm in. I'm good. Got my fire insurance. I'm going to go do my thing. Go live my life. Put it on cruise control die in 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years and coast right on into glory. It's not how this works. It works by us pointing ourselves and each other back to our desperate need for Christ and for repeatedly throwing ourselves at the feet of King Jesus and begging for his mercy and his grace to bestow upon us to sever the root that connects us to our own for the desire for our own glory, above the glory of God the Father. <clears throat> so as I mentioned earlier, it's a beautiful passage. Because it doesn't matter which side of the coin you're on. If you're struggling with religious pride, it's very convicting. But if you're one seeking, looking for hope and realizing your own sinfulness, there is so much hope in this passage. Because it's available. It is available to us. The grace of Christ resurrected is available to us to sever that root. So this morning, our, my call to us is not divided up between those who are found in Christ and those who are not found in Christ. My call is to all of us to throw ourselves desperately at the feet of King Jesus and beg for his mercy upon us to sever our root that ties us to our own glory and steals from us the joy that is found in living to the glory of God the Father. I'm going to end this morning with where we started, 2 Corinthians 4. pray that we take heart this morning in these words. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed every day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all.
Let me pray for us. Father, we, we pray John 5, Ephesians 2, 1 John 1, Romans 8, and 2 Corinthians 4 over us today. God, we, we pray that no matter our eternal state, that you convict our hearts of our desire for self-glory. God, we pray that that sits heavy upon us, that we spend time in John 5, and that we ask ourselves the question over and over and over again, how then can I believe when I seek my own glory? God, I pray you bring that question to our mind in those moments when we shirk responsibility, when we put down others, when we seek our own good, when we seek our own self-preservation, when we put our own agendas first. God, I pray that in those moments, as soon as they happen, you bring to mind John 5.44. So then, how can you, Lee Parker, believe when you have just sought your own glory? I pray that in those moments that that conviction sets heavy upon us. Pray that you then fill us with all hope. With all hope. Knowing that Ephesians 2 is true. There's a gift of God. There's a sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice poured out on Calvary. So that my sinful root can be severed. So that action that I just did can be severed. And that I can exchange my own desire for glory for the desire of the glory of God the Father. And God, in the next breath, I pray that you fill us with the words of 2 Corinthians 4. This slight and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So Father, fill us with your spirit now as we sing these words and as we leave this place to go to the things you have prepared for us as your workmanship. God, I pray we go with all humility, fully understanding for those of us found in Christ, we are the children of God. And that for us awaits a weight of eternal glory that we cannot comprehend. In your precious holy name we pray. Amen. Please stand with us.